Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, it's time to be brutally honest. Have you ever heard yourself say this? Kids these days, what's wrong with them? All their crazy music. I mean, it's just noise. That usually leads to... Music isn't as good as it used to be. When I was younger, in high school, university... Oh man, that music was awesome. And that's followed by a list of bands and songs you believe to be the greatest ever, a lot of which aren't as popular as you still want them to be. And then things usually end up like this. You know, if today's kids would stop and listen to what we used to listen to, they'd see that I'm right. Then we start getting some good new music. Don't worry, because if any of this sounds familiar, it's because it is totally natural. People always hate the music of the generations that are coming up behind them. And I mean always. The young are always denigrated for their music, their way of dancing, their technology, and their overall disrespect for their elders and history and the way things used to be. It's the cycle of life. And it's been going on not just for decades, but centuries. Here, let me show you. Why do you need new bands? Everyone knows Rock attained perfection in 1974. It's a scientific fact. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Once you've heard High Fidelity reproduction, you'll be hard to satisfy with anything less. That's a novelty record from 1974 by a group of studio musicians who called themselves Reunion. It's a nostalgic look back at artists and songs and DJs of the past, a time that was presumably way better than the 1974 Homer Simpson remembers. All right, fast forward to 2016, and we have hits like this that are just as nostalgic for the good old days. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when the mama sang us to sing. 21 pilots who were apparently all stressed out. Hello again, I'm Ellen Cross, and I'm here to prepare you for what you were about to become. Here's the theme of this show. Every generation has the biological right to believe that the music of their youth is the greatest music ever made. I read that somewhere, and if I could remember where, I would give the dude proper attribution because it is so true. It usually works like this. There's a musical sweet spot in our lives that exists between about the time we enter high school and our mid-twenties. We have lots of time to spend with music. We might have lots of money to spend on music, CDs, vinyl, concerts, and many of us use music to project our identity on the world. It could be something as simple as a t-shirt to the way you cut your hair or even a full-on costume, metal, goth, punk, pop, emo, whatever. But by the time we get to our mid-twenties, life starts to intrude. Jobs, relationships, mortgages, kids. And by then, you've pretty much established your identity. You know who you are, and you don't need to use music as much 
to make that introduction to the world. You may also find yourself spending less time searching out new music. That's because you have less time, and it's just easier to fall back on the stuff you know you already like. And before you know it, you're wondering where all the good music went. Can't be you, right? It's got to be these damn kids. I mean, what's wrong with them? Music just isn't as good as it used to be. Hold on to that thought. I want to read you something. Forms and rhythms in music are never altered without producing changes in the entire fabric of society. It is here that we must be so careful, since these new forms creep in imperceptibly in the form of a seemingly harmless diversion. But, little by little, this mischief becomes more and more familiar and spreads into our manners and pursuits. Then, with gathering force, it invades men's dealings with one another and goes on to attack the laws and the Constitution with reckless impudence until it ends by overthrowing the whole structure of public and private life. That's a long way of saying kids these days, their music is ruining everything. Those words were written about 2,500 years ago by the great Greek philosopher Plato. He was very, very worried that the youth of the day were being driven out of control by such stomping hits, such as this. Yeah, crazy. No wonder Plato was freaked out. He was also very much against mixing and matching various styles of music within the same song. He called that an impure conjunction of moods and states of mind. For example, a composition should never, ever contain passages in both major and minor keys, and songs could never contain elements of both comedy and tragedy. He also opposed music that was slow and dirgy because he said it promoted sloth and drunkenness. And those kids who played music fast with chopped notes? That ruined any opportunity for sober contemplation of life. So let's mark Plato down as not being a scoff man. Let me give you a few more tut-tuttings about the music of the young. There were towns where one could enjoy all sorts of histrionic spectacles from morning to night. And, we must admit, the more people hear lascivious and pernicious songs, which raise their souls' impure and voluptuous desires, the more they want to hear. That came from St. Basil, who lived in the 5th century. Then we have this from John S. White, a composer of hymns in the middle 19th century, who was definitely some kind of a music snob. Such tunes, although whistled and sung by everybody, are erroneously supposed to have taken a deep hold of the popular mind, but they are hummed and whistled without musical emotion. They persevere and haunt the morbidly sensitive nerves of deeply musical persons, so that they too hum and whistle them voluntarily, hating them even while they hum them. Such a melody breaks out every now and then, like a morbid irritation of the skin. All right, so adults have been looking down on the music of youth for centuries. Young people think what they're doing is revolutionary, and their elders think it's degenerate. Music innovations were greeted by older persons as the death of civilization. And then the youth grow older and naturally more conservative, and the cycle repeats. Now, I'm speaking in general terms, of course, but this is a pattern that has continued for generations. 
When our species figured out how to record and store music for future use, this cycle accelerated. In fact, recording technology itself was described by many as a horrible, horrible development. Recorded music was the end of music itself. There was John Philip Sousa, the leader of arguably the most popular American brass band ever. His big thing was the march. He loved marches. Orderly, military-like, disciplined. And he wrote material like this. That's actually called the Liberty Bell March, co-opted 65 years later as the theme of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Sousa hated the idea of recording music. He called it canned music. When his band had to make records, he stayed home and let his trombonist conduct the session. His thinking was records would put musicians out of work. Why would anyone go out to see a brass band when they could just listen to a recording at home? And it would be the same recording over and over and over again with no variation, the human element completely stripped away. Imagine what he might have thought had he read an article published in the Daily Mail in 1903. In time, we might get all our music by mechanical means. Well, that was never going to happen. I mean, the only way to listen to music is the way humans have done since the beginning, live and in the moment. Uh, yeah, well, sorry, Mr. Souza. Thanks to recording technology, we can preserve our music for all time, and even, and especially, Voices of the Dead. It's almost impossible to believe that some people were against the recording of music. It would ruin the spiritual experience of hearing music played live. It would put musicians out of work. It will lead to a crash in the sales of musical instruments. Piano teachers will go begging for work. Substandard music would inevitably be recorded and preserved for all time. And it was bound to be abused. Who knows? Someone was probably going to use this devilish device to record the music of the Negroes and other lesser races. Seriously, this is how people fought. But there was no stopping progress, and the young, of all races, thankfully, took this technology and ran with it, establishing the music industry as we know it. Which leads me to a nice segue. You think that the weirdness of the business side of music is a recent thing? Well, think again. I'm going to prove it to you in just a second. I call this show, The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same. It could very well be called Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. There is nothing new under the sun, or everything that has been invented has been invented, which is a quote from Charles Holland Duell, the commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office, who said that about 120 years ago. Let's talk about how the music industry does business. I hear this one all the time. Record companies shove songs down our throats today. They get ready to play the same songs over and over again until the public is brainwashed into liking them. Well... Okay, maybe. But these techniques are not new. Beginning in the late 1800s, songwriters and music publishers began cranking out popular songs on sheet music. The biggest concentration of these offices was on West 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue in New York. It got the name Tin Pan Alley because if you walked down this street, all you heard were people banging on pianos, making sounds like tin pans. The job of the people working in Tin Pan Alley was to create new popular songs that would then be sold as sheet music and then later as records. Back in the day, sheet music sold millions of copies. 
with the phonograph still several decades away from catching on, every civilized home had to have a piano so that people could provide music for themselves and their family and their friends. These millions of piano owners needed a constant supply of new material, and they bought a lot of it. Once a publisher had some songs to sell, they were given to people known as demonstrators. They visited popular singers in hopes of getting them to sing the new songs as part of their music hall and vaudeville acts. Some stood in public places and sang the songs to everyone with an earshot. Some even sold the sheet music door-to-door. If a singer agreed to perform the new song, the demonstrator, acting as a song plugger, would sit in the audience waiting for the song to be performed. When it was, he would jump up and scream exaggerated love for it. It was hoped that this would convince other people in the audience to react the same way and then demand an encore of the song. Sounds kind of dumb now, but these tactics are still applied at dance clubs. The DJ puts on a new track, and a group of shills hits the dance floor like maniacs. Song pluggers still exist too, but they work on behalf of artists and labels. They do their best to convince radio stations to play their records, music supervisors to use their songs in TV shows and movies, record stores to work harder to sell more copies, and so on. Another flavor is the music publicist, people who work to get their clients' music heard above all the noise. It's a tough and very important job within the industry. The tactics may have changed, but the goals are still the same. Make the public aware of new songs and hopefully encourage the public to turn those songs into hits. You'll dance to anything by the communists. You'll dance to anything by Book of Love. You'll dance to anything by the Smiths. You'll dance to anything by James Let's talk for a moment about music piracy. Most people associate this with the rise of Napster and file sharing programs beginning in 1999. If you're a bit older, you'll remember bootleg CDs and before that, bootleg vinyl. Basically, it all comes down to the same thing. Musical material being sold by people who have no right to sell it. Now, let me read you something. Canadian pirates are what music dealers call publishing houses across the line who are flooding this country, they say, with spurious editions of the latest copyrighted popular songs. They use the mails to reach purchasers, and as a result, the legitimate music publishing business of the United States has fallen off 50% in the last 12 months. That's a quote from the New York Times written in 1897. The issue was illegal reproductions of sheet music. Guys would stand outside music halls and sell sheet music of popular songs for a fraction of what the legitimate scores cost. In the early 20th century, reps from a British organization called the Music Copyright Association were seizing up to 60,000 pirated copies of sheet music every month. This forced the legitimate music publishing companies to cut their prices by 75%. Hey, this sound familiar? Here's another thing you'll hear people say today. All songs sound the same. There's no variation in anything. Well, people have been saying this for a hundred years or more, and we might want to blame Charles K. Harris. He's the guy who essentially invented the popular song. In fact, he wrote a book in 1906 entitled How to Write a Popular Song. His rules? You need a short title. The chorus of the song must contain a memorable hook. The best songs have stories. No syllable should be sung with more than one note. And he declared that there were exactly 11 types of songs and no more. Are you ready? Here they are. The home song, the sensational story ballad, 
the popular waltz song, the coon song, which I know is a horrible racist name, but it's what they called African-American music back then. Then there's the march song, the comic song, songs used in big musical productions, the popular love ballad, high-class ballads, and sacred songs. For years, people followed the precepts set down by Charles K. Harris. And yeah, people started to say that all popular songs sounded the same. Now, this did prompt others to experiment with new forms of musical expression, ones that didn't follow these rules. And out of this came ragtime, a form of syncopated music of African-American origins. And out of ragtime came jazz. Now, this was a problem. It was a very big problem. We'll get to that in a moment, but first a little clash. Here they are with Jimmy Jazz. That town and now, the police came in, they said, now, where's Jimmy Jazz? I said, mm, he was here, but um, he said he went out. He's there looking for Jimmy Jazz, 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 Jazz. The Clash from London Calling with Jimmy Jazz. And when we come back, I will tell you some stories from the jazz era that will sound very, very, very familiar to you. What I'm trying to do with this show is prove that every generation hates the music of the generations that come before and after them. And it has always been this way. One of the biggest shocks to the system was jazz, this new rhythmic style of popular music that resulted in <gasps> dancing. Now, I can't overemphasize how much of a threat that was seen to be by oldsters in the teens, 20s, and 30s of the 20th century. Let me give you some quotes from those days. The jazz musician has run amok and should be relentlessly put down. And another, let's not try to reform jazz, but to stamp it out, to kill it like a rattlesnake. No true American would practice this base art. They are ribald and revolting to true men. Jazz is born of disorder in the nervous system. Heart tests have shown that the original composers of jazz music suffered from irregular heartbeats. So you see what I mean? Jazz was linked with the licentiousness of the Prohibition era and the wild and spontaneous dancing that resulted. The way young people touched each other while dancing was scandalous. Young women ditched their traditional form-fitting outfits with their corsets and adopted loose-fitting clothing which allowed for more movement on the dance floor. This was an absolute outrage. Some, however, were quick to assure the panicked populace that this was merely a fad and that young people would soon go back to more civilized forms of dancing, like the waltz. Yeah, well, no. Those who were a little older, those who didn't dance, or those who preferred forms of music that were more traditional, hated jazz even more. But the young people of the 20s, they loved it. But as the jazz of the 20s evolved into the big band and swing era of the 1930s, the prohibitionist-era jazz fans turned up their noses at this newer, louder, and more improvisational form of music that lured in dumb kids. Swing music is musical Hitlerism, one person wrote. The oldsters had proof that no one liked this new music. Between 1929 and 1932, the music industry in America collapsed. In the United States, record sales dropped by more than 90%. In 1927, more than 100 million discs were sold. In 1932, that number was just 6 million. Here are a couple of quotes. The day of the popular record as a big money maker is past. That's from a 1931 issue of a magazine called Phonography Monthly Review. Yeah, phonography, not pornography. Then we have this from Music Seller, a British trade magazine from the same year. The public has lost its thrill in record buying. 
there is little enthusiasm, and the hope of a return to the previous high figures is still remote. Even the great inventor Thomas Edison, the guy who came up with recorded sound in the first place, closed down his record business. No more discs, no more cylinders, no more phonographs. The market, he thought, was dead. Of course, this collapse had little to do with the new music the kids were into, and everything to do with the Great Depression. As bad as things were for the music industry in the post-Napster era, it was nothing compared to the great cratering of the 1930s. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The Flaming Lips, along with Star Death and White Dwarves, plus Henry Rollins doing their best with some Pink Floyd. Now, while we're on the subject of money, I have another quote. Popular music is 10% art and 90% business. Sound familiar? Well, that came from band leader Artie Shaw in 1940. Throughout the 30s and 40s, young people battled against their elders over what constituted good music and proper dancing. By the 1940s, big band fans were appalled at this new thing called swing. And then swing fans got all upset about bop. Old school jazz fans hated the way new jazz players insisted on improvising as they performed. The dean of the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, thought that this sort of thing was bound to lead to emotional problems in young people. Let me quote. I hesitate to think of what effect music will have upon the next generation if the present school of hot jazz continues to develop unabated. It should provide an increasing number of patients for psychiatric hospitals. Proper people agreed. It was well known that jazz clubs were places where marijuana was used. The hip name for it back then was tea. And heroin use was admittedly terrible. Jazz players like Charlie Parker were junkies. So was blues singer Billie Holiday. French singer Edith Piaf was a terrible addict. And the same thing with Judy Garland. She went from playing Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz in 1939 to a human train wreck, dying of an overdose at age 47. The general public and mainstream press tut-tutted all this. See how evil and deadly popular music and its seedy culture can be? This is terrible. Keep your children away from this. Now remember, we're still talking about the music scenes of the 1940s. Does any of this sound familiar? Poor Amy Winehouse, part of the so-called 27 Club, young, gifted performers who died at age 27. But back in the 40s, we had the 47 Club. A lot of big stars drank or drugged themselves to death at around that age, causing people to point to the music as the root cause of all these tragedies and deaths. And we're not done yet. Oh, no. Because we haven't even touched on the rock era, I want to keep this thread of the more things change, the more they stay the same through one more program. And this is where the battles of the generations over what constitutes good and proper music gets even more crazy. And it's not just about the music. There are the fights over the technology used to make it. And I think you'll be very surprised at the things that used to get people very, very, very upset and very, very, very angry at the generation coming up. That's next time. Meanwhile, let's continue to talk. My email is alan at alancross.ca. I read everything and answer everything myself. 
There's my website, a journal of musical things.com, which is updated every single day with the coolest music stuff I can find. And if you need me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google plus, I am there for you. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 